Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. That music means it's time for the Hilltale Dialogue, our weekending Friday always program that looks at things that matter longer than the week that was just finished with Dr. Larry Arn. I thought Dr. Ken Calvert was going to join us this morning. I'm not sure if he is or not. Good morning, Dr. Arn, president of Hillsdale College. How are you? Good morning, Hugh Hewitt. How are you? I'm good. I, I'm great. Is the college back? Is everything functioning? Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, what I like to say about that is it was on the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, no drama? Well, there's plenty. You know, everybody's wearing masks, and uh, we, we, we have... Uh, one case of an adjunct faculty member from Fort Fort Wayne, and uh, we don't. We, his wife, he got it from his wife, and he's only been on the campus once since he got it. So I don't think we have it around right now. We have te- we tested a bunch of athletes because the NCAA makes us, and none of them had it. But we expect to get a lot of cases, and uh, you know we're we've got quarantine procedures and we've got sanitation. And we're going to relax gradually the wearing of the masks and increase it if we get a lot of cases. But the other thing is, we it's, it's a it's a contagious virus. We're probably going to get a bunch of cases. Are you uh, are you wearing a mask? I would like a picture of that. I don't know how it gets over your beard. Well, my my rule is I make I wear a mask everywhere I make the students wear them. <laughs> ah, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Now, uh, Doctor Arn, in terms of. Uh, uh, football is Hillsdale's football, which is a very good football team, by the way. Yeah. Are they playing this year? No, the NCAA has gutted that, so we're going to play in the spring and uh, a truncated season. Okay, well, I'm glad to take the field some. I'm upset with the Big Ten because if the SEC can play, the yeah. big programs ought to be able to play. I think that is your governor who is behind that. Uh, that is the theory. I haven't Probably. seen it confirmed. But, but the other thing is, it you know, first of all, the NCAA, it has three divisions, and they, we're Division Two, And Division, they, they have different rules. And Division Two made some draconian rules, which effectively pass the liability from the NCAA to the colleges and then require you to do a bunch of stuff that's very expensive and most, most schools won't do it. We would, we would do it. Everybody else is doing it. Uh, so it's, you know, and, and, you know, it's all, we're in it. It's a whack-a-mole game, right? You've, everybody's trying to get knocked, knocked out everybody else so they don't have to bear the cost of this. And it's, it's just ugly, in my opinion. And, you know, at one point they were talking about a rule that they couldn't practice. And I said, you're going to tell me, whoever you are, that my students can't go outside and play. And, you know, it was kind of like that. Uh, it look, relaxed I, a little bit. We had, two, we had two visits by presidential candidates to Kenosha, Wisconsin this week. Poor Joe Biden went there yesterday, and there were like 12 people outside of the church he was attending. Uh, Donald Trump arrived, and the, the street was lined, appropriately distanced and wearing masks for miles. Reince Priebus, if we have that cut, if I can play Reince Priebus talking to Jason Chaffetz yesterday, about what has happened in the aftermath of the virus and the riots. Oh, Dr. First of all, you're right. He had here, business here in Kenosha because he was part of the federal response to restore order in Kenosha. Joe Biden has nothing in Kenosha other than he's running for president. But <laughs> I lived in Kenosha my entire life. My parents still live in Kenosha. 
I can tell you without any exaggeration from Waukegan, Illinois to Kenosha, Wisconsin is about a 25 minute drive. I have never in my life seen the outpouring of support, not just tacit support, but wild off the charts report support for this president. And it was about 99% to one. This is a 65% Democrat town. And all they want to do is in these signs saying, thank you for saving our town. People need to realize a week ago that Kenosha was burning down and people were putting their kids, no exaggeration, in their basements while dad was sitting in the kitchen with their hunting rifles, not knowing who was going to come through the front door. Things have changed in, uh, in the field, this issue of law and order is real. The, the, and, and if you look at what the president's talking about, you look at what the Democrats are talking about, defunding the police, kneeling for the national anthem, suspending seasons of the NBA and, 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 and not playing sports, not putting the kids in school. This election is coming down to freedom and how we want to live as Americans. And Kenosha is the example of it all. What do you make of that, Larry Arn? <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, it is. It, uh, yeah, he's, you know, I, I, I don't know him very well, but I know him a little bit. And I've never talked to him, but I wasn't impressed with him. And, yeah, I think that's right. You know, it, uh, there's a book out on Amazon. Have you seen that book? And I'm not going to be able to remember the name of it. Looting, it's got the word looting in the title. And, and it was, you know, touted by Amazon for a few days. And the point of it is that looting is the way to real democracy. And in times of a national upheaval, then people just expropriate property so that, they, so that uh, everything is leveled. And then they said, a lot of the times when they loot, they throw the, the uh, property that they've stolen or looted out into the street, and that's sharing. <laughs> so, oh, well, up so. is down. I just had Secretary Pompeo on before you. Uh, you should know the secretary was just here. And he was commenting on the Jeffrey Goldberg quote story alleging that President Trump disparaged fallen soldiers at the American cemetery outside of Paris. And the secretary completely rebutted that. And he's been with him more than anybody, probably more than Pence. Uh, The vice president is in different places. But uh, Pompeo was with him, briefing him almost every day for the first year and a half before he became secretary of state. He said, absolutely not. And Pompeo's a soldier. I, I, I do think... Up is down and left is right right now. A, a color scheme is mixed up. People can't get basic facts right. I think uh, I think everything is surprising right now, and I expect that the election is going to be surprising too. <laughs> uh, expand on that. What do you mean by that? Well, I you know I I don't I I don't believe the polls. I never believe them, but uh, they're pretty good. But. You know, people are afraid to say now. This is this atmosphere is just condemnatory, and social media is a mob. And so, you know, they probably probably get one myself. But uh, so I I think people have to, you know, like what Ryan Priebus reported in Kenosha, people don't want their buildings and their homes burned down, and that's not you know you. Law. You, you have to live under law, or you will be miserable. And and uh, that's you know that's the, the that's what the election is going to be about. I predict. 
And, you know, uh, I, I just got the uh, the new book about Scalia, the first chapter of which is his famous Harvard Law School address, The Rule of Law and the Law of Rules, and in which then Justice Scalia, uh, he had risen up from the D.C. Circuit where he'd been Judge Scalia, explained, if you haven't got a law of rules, you've got nothing. You've got whim. And it's a, it's a very elaborate uh, explanation of why we, you just said, if you don't have laws, you're miserable. Yeah. You can't, you know, if, uh, we, like, I, you know, I'm impatient, to say the very least, about the pandemic policies. And one reason is we don't, you know, what about, like, the suicides are up huge. The director of the CDC said on July the 14th that the extra suicides in America for the last six weeks, I think he said, were outpacing deaths from the coronavirus. And so you confine people to quarters and you close their businesses. But they have built those businesses, and those are hard to build, and you invest your life in them, and then all of a sudden everything stops. And so that's, you know, that's demoralizing to people. And we, we just forget that the work of America is done by the American people, and it's not done by the government. And this, is, this is why I want Brian Westbury quoted in every story about whether or not to reopen, because I don't know the answer, but I know that Brian Westbury knows the cost of not reopening. Yeah. And we always learn about, you know, the, the theater is an issue, right? I had uh, Sonny Bunch on earlier today. I would like to see this movie Tenet. Uh, I would really like to see this movie Tenet uh, by Christopher Nolan. I don't know whether to go because I'm 60, almost 65 years old. And I've got asthma. But if someone would tell me what the real risk were, I could make an informed judgment. But it's hard to find that information. Yeah. It, uh, you know, we've at the college, we've hired a bunch of experts, which mostly won't let us pay them because they they, they like it. That somebody is intending to go on bad precedent. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we, you know, we. So just think of this. You know, this is the thing that was apparent to me from the first moment. Where this this thing broke during spring break, and I was besieged with students wanting to come back to college, right? And so they were deprived of something, and that's a shame. When they did get back, they were happy. More on that when we come back. Plus Caesar. We'll try Dr. Kenneth Kelbert during the break. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Leon, president of Hillsdale College, is joined by Dr. Kenneth Calvert. Professor Calvert joins us in the second segment. We had a little technical mess up there. Uh, Professor Calvert, we were talking about Caesar only in passing. We were waiting for you to arrive and to give us the, the quick march from the fall of Carthage to the beginning of the Roman Revolution. Welcome, good morning, and you have the Thank floor. You. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, you know, Scipio Emilianus was uh, uh, the, the adopted grandson of Scipio Africanus, so he had a lot to live up to. And the guy led the forces against uh, Carthage in the Third Punic War and was successful in, uh, in destroying Carthage. The thing is, though, uh, in, in 146, the day that Carthage was being destroyed, uh, the historian Polybius, who was the teacher of Scipio Emilianus, saw the young man crying. He was in tears and asked him why. And, and the bottom line was that he, he knew that all cultures come to an end, all great empires come to an end, and that someday Rome would be just like Carthage, you know, being destroyed in that dramatic way. And there's there's something prophetic about that 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 sense of, um, of 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 Rome coming to an end, 
because over the next hundred years, from 146 down to 44 uh, BC, and you know what that date is—that's the the death of Julius Caesar. Um, for that hundred years, Rome, the Roman Republic, really dissolved into a series of internal mob actions, um, lots of rising tyrants, assassinations, and it, it really dissolves into into chaos. And what is what's happening there is that the the republic was designed as a society of free men, um, balances of power, the Senate and people of Rome, SPQR, and the, the development of an empire by the Republic, its own success really challenged it to the, to, to the end. It, it really brought about a situation in which um, a, a very traditional Republic could not develop institutions to rule over an empire. Um, the, uh, the, the result of this was um, foreign influences, particularly Greek influences, really challenged their old virtues. The rise of wealth, the rise of power, the control of land and provinces and the corruption that came with that, all of that challenged the, uh, the, the republic. And they weren't able really to find um, the necessary corrections to be able to handle this this great success. Yeah, Dr. Kevin, um, they did not have yeah. a written constitution, correct? They just had tradition. That's exactly right. And um, we, we often read about the constitution of the Roman Republic, but there was no document. Uh, there were some written laws like the Twelve Tables, but really this was passed on from generation to generation as tradition. And really the Senate uh, really had the the main job of passing along that tradition and that constitution. Um, the, the idea of the Mos Maiorum, the tradition of the elders, was incredibly important to the Romans um, in, throughout their culture. And what, what began to happen here is you had the rise of tyrants and powerful men um, who really wanted to control the wealth, the, the the, the provinces, all that Rome now included within it. And again, the Senate did not have, the, 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 the traditional republic did not have enough of a strength of friends of, of purpose to be able to hold up against these men. Um, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus were two brothers who attempted to apply some fixes uh, to the, the, the situation. They were unsuccessful. One thing they wanted to do was to return land back to the, to the hands of the regular citizens, the soldiers. To be a soldier, you had to be a citizen. To be a citizen, you had to have land. And as these soldiers were serving longer and longer periods of time overseas, they were losing their farms. And then <laughs> they could no longer be citizens and therefore no longer be soldiers. And so what the Gracchi brothers, uh, Tiberius and Gaius, tried to do was to return land into the hands of, of these uh, everyday soldiers. And, and also what they wanted to do was to expand citizenship to the Italian allies uh, throughout the Italian peninsula. When we come back, we'll talk about this period of increasing instability that ends up in the person of Julius Caesar and the rise of emperors. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. 
I'm Hugh Hewitt. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. There's a button there at hillsdale.edu for all the dialogues, which I think date back to 2012. There are hundreds of them. And we've been talking, we've talked about Caesar before because we've done Plutarch before, but we haven't really covered the history top to bottom. I'd also say the uh, interview I did with Secretary Pompeo has now posted all the audio and transcript including his denunciation of the Atlantic article posted at HughHewitt.com. Dr. Arndt, you know, you and I have gone through Plutarch together, and you know it's one of my favorites. Why do you want people to know about the decline and fall of Rome? Are you one of those people that see in its its, uh, accelerating demise lessons for today? Well, sure, but, uh, you know, it's... uh, Some famous person said, history doesn't repeat itself, but maybe it rhymes. Uh, you know, it, uh, if, you, if you study Winston Churchill and if you study Julius Caesar, you don't get the idea that trends are everything. It's what people do. And they, they lost, you know, it's interesting in that civil war, you know, where Caesar was eventually killed and Cicero too, um, most of them were trying to restore the republic, right? And, and you, you couldn't do it. And the reason was... If you relax your, if you got authority and you relaxed it, somebody was going to kill you, and that, you know that. So what was lost? Ken mentioned it earlier, right? The Romans were pious and disciplined and self-controlled. They had those tremendous qualities, right? And that's how they conquered, you know, much of the world. And and then you know they did get rich and happy and power-seeking. But, you know, I, I, my own view, I did, we, we should ask Ken what he thinks, is that Julius Caesar w- wanted to restore Rome to its pristine Republican forms, w- which involved a, a constitutional balances and, and a limited authority of any one person. The Senate was strong, but not all strong, and the tribunes had their, uh, the plebeians had their tribunes, so he, I think he wanted that back. And, no, you know, no. I'll ask Dr. Calvert that. And by the way, uh, the job number came in, and we added uh, 1.4 million jobs in America. Unemployment fell down to 8.4%. The V-shaped recovery continues. That's good news. Uh, maybe we're not in the Roman collapse right now, Dr. Calvert. But Sula comes along in the middle. Of, you mentioned the Italian Civil War right before we went to break. And the Italians wanted to be Romans, and the Romans didn't want the Italians. And so they ended up in a war after which Sulla kind of restores. He's trying to go back to the old way, right? He's, he's a dictator, he, but he, and he's got these prescription lists, but he's, he's pretty heavy-handed. And that's, and that's really, uh, I think, the main problem you find with Sulla and then also with Caesar. I think Dr. Arn is absolutely right that they're, they're trying to get back to a time that they believe uh, was was more pure and and more Republican. The problem is that they both, both Sulla and then Caesar later, um, very much use a kind of centralization in the office of dictator. And and the office of dictator, you've got to understand, that was an elected office. You were elected to dictator by the Senate for six months 
in a time of great strain and a time of great threat to the Republic. But these guys, um, Sola first, and then later Caesar, would try to use this office um, above its traditional and, well, constitutional um, mode. Uh, it, was, it was a greater centralization of power. Um, Sola killed thousands through his proscriptions and trying to get rid of people he thought were were um, you know undermining uh, the republic, and then Julius Caesar, early on in his series of dictatorships, he he had the support of most of Rome, but when he had himself uh, voted dictator for life, and that was um, you know in uh, early 44 BC, that's when he really lost a lot of the support. Uh, of those who had thought he was doing he was doing good, um, you know. On top of that, he was minting coins in his own image. He had built a golden throne in the Senate. <laughs> you know, that's a giveaway. Was, yeah, that's yeah. A- and so you know, there was there was some good evidence that the guy was maybe pushing a little t- too close to kingship. But you know, I, I think, and, and Dr. Arn alluded to this as well. There were people all through this time who were trying to guide these these men, like Pompey and Caesar, who were trying to help them get back to um, you know that goal of getting back to the Republic. People like Cato the Younger, or people like Cicero in particular. Cicero is so key here, eloquent uh, philosopher, defender of the Republic and of natural law. You know, uh, there, there are many scholars who have said if only we had had Cicero, or only if the Republic had had Cicero a hundred years earlier, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the Republic would have been fine. But, you know, the, the long and the short of it is here is that Julius Caesar comes to power. He really is in many ways a mixed bag, as are many of these politicians. He rises to power out of great ambition, um, does he have a desire to see the republic return? Yes. But does he also desire to see Caesar uh, as a great man? Yes. And so you have some real tensions there. He also happens to have in his, uh, in his train um, a queen from Egypt, uh, Cleopatra. And when you know, she moves to Rome with their son, um, people think that uh, when you know he's going to pass the republic over to a foreign queen, um, and that they're going to be ruled by a foreign power. So there's so many things that come together here in Caesar and who he is as a man, and you know some of his ideals, you know, as over and against some of his personal issues. <laughs> Doctor, when you hear the term Caesarism. And, and we've heard Trump accused of Caesarism and authoritarianism, and Napoleon was accused of being a Caesar. What's it mean to you, Caesarism? Well, it, 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 uh, it means what Caesar did, right? He, uh, he became the sole authority, and he based his authority chiefly in the populace and the army, in the case of Caesar. And so there was a kind of popular movement that, uh, swept away all of the other institutions than Caesar, and you, you should, you know, I want to, I, I want to, I agree with everything Ken just said very much, but also I'd say Caesar was confronted with a terrible problem, right? Because he went off and conquered Gaul, and so his reward for that was Pompey maneuvered in the Senate to get him accused of treason, and so he he was. He, he, was, he was either going to be exiled or killed, or what he did do, which he brought his army back to Rome and did it by force. And so the, they, you know, they, 
these guys' choices were circumscribed by the decline in the rule of law and the devotion to the rule of law. Now, there were three bigs for a time. Crassus, who goes off and gets slaughtered by the Persians. Pompey, uh, who is a a great warrior, and and Caesar. When there were three, it was okay, Dr. Calvert. When there were two, not okay. Well, I think that it's, again, there. That's a a complicated story because the three of them together, uh, they're kind of what the kids call frenemies. You know, they're the original um, group that... When it was to their benefit, they would work together, and then they had a great deal of animosity and jealousy um, towards one another otherwise. And so it was. there was a great deal of tension among the triumvirate. Now, what it did produce was um, an opportunity for Julius Caesar to go and invade Gaul, uh, to take on the Gauls, which, uh, which Dr. Arne had mentioned here. And when, when Caesar comes back, from conquering Gaul, you have to understand that the Gauls were seen by the Romans as the major, you know, barbarian force on their northern border that had the the potential of creating great havoc and overthrowing Rome. And it's basically France, modern-day France. Exactly, exactly. And and, uh, Belgium and some other areas there, but modern-day France. And what... um, what Caesar had done in conquering Gaul, and we have this laid out in Caesar's Gallic Wars, that great set of accounts that he would send back to Rome to remind people of what he's doing there while he knows Pompey is undermining his position back in Rome. Caesar is sending back these accounts to be read to people and read to the Senate. And this is what we have in a, in a now a unified text, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, an amazing thing that all young men used to read um, as, as a matter of fact. But uh, here you have this man who thinks, Julius Caesar, who thinks that he has now rid Rome of this great enemy and expects to be praised for it, expects to be given a triumph, you know, this great parade through Rome, praising him for having uh, taken care of these barbarians. And what does he find? Pompey and the Senate are accusing him of genocide. They're accusing him of being a traitor and wanting to be a king and do not cross the Rubicon. Uh, you know, they, 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 they lay that line down. They say, you can come across alone. And, he, and Caesar knows what that means. Um, and so Caesar says, nope, I'm coming and I'm bringing my troops. And as Dr. Ryan said, yeah, he marches on the city. I got, I got to ask, though, um, if you were a Roman and you followed the 10 years that, that Caesar is away killing Gauls, and what, at one instance, he cuts the hands off of everybody in a city. Another time, he'll murder 10,000 people without blinking an eye. Uh, Dr. Arndt, if you're watching, you're getting these dispatches, aren't you a little bit worried about this guy? Uh, well, he was formidable. And, uh, and yeah, but, you know, it was, uh, war was, uh, you know, war is very terrible today. And there are atrocities, but, you know, in, in modern war, there have been much bigger atrocities than in Rome, than Caesar. I mean, look how many... There's no telling how many Russian soldiers the German army executed when it was invading Russia, and then back the other way when the yeah. Russians came back, right? So, yeah, they you know, and they, but they're also, uh, what Ken said, France is big, right? It's bigger than Italy, and, and so 
to go out there and clean that up, that was heroic. And so he had prestige from that, but also fear. And you needed that, right? I mean, he in the end, the way all this went was uh, what happened to Pompey was Caesar beat him in the field. You know, they had they had big battles, and then Brutus too. And so Caesar was a really great commander, and that was the key to his uh, uh, to his rising. And when we come back, we'll talk about what happens after he routs Pompey, and he is merciful. I always like to stress to people that he really did try and put things back together by pardoning everyone. But we got to remember, Washington loved Cato more than any other play, and the founders held up Cicero pretty much every time they could. I think Madison was a Cicero addict. We'll talk about what that means for America in the last segment uh, they didn't. They were not fans of Caesar at the founding of our republic. They were fans of Cato the Younger, and they were fans of Cicero. When we return, welcome back, America. To Hewitt with Dr. Larry Owen, Dr. Ken Calvert. We're finishing up on Caesar. Caesar deserves hours and hours. It is remarkable, Dr. Calvert, and all things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. New biographies of Caesar continue to come out. Isn't that something? It's been two thousand years, and we still get new biographies of Caesar. That's right, and uh, Adrian Goldsworthy's uh, biography is really the best of the of the current ones, um, and you know it is it is amazing, really, in the last I would say twenty years, how many books uh, Mary Beard, Tom Holland, variety of authors have produced some excellent works on Caesar and on the Republic and on this very issue. I, I think, you know, intentionally or, or subconsciously, people are aware. Of of how much we are, uh, you know, mimicking um, some of these ancient cultures, and, and uh, like Dr. Arn said, I, I don't know that this is, you know, exactly like the Roman Republic or has to be. What I do tell my students, though, is that all free societies have similar issues that they have to deal with, and one of those is some, you know, the fickleness of the of the voter, the fickleness of the citizen, and. We focus here, of course, on both uh, collegiate but also K through 12 education. And what we need to do is just a better, better job of training our young men and women and our children uh, about citizenship and what it means to be a great citizen and an intelligent citizen. Um, and it's something that people in uh, the modern world, um, in public education, if I'm allowed to say this, is that uh, there has been a real, um, you know, demotion of of good, solid citizenship, training of citizenship. Doctor, on your book, The Founder's Key, uh, spends a lot of time thinking about what the American framers thought. How much did they pay attention? I, I made an allusion to this, but if I overstated it, correct me. How much did the ancient Roman example matter to Madison and Hamilton and the rest of the people in Philadelphia? Well, uh, the greatest evidence of the truth of what you said is the career of George Washington, because they were very, you know, first of all, they were in a war with a king, and they didn't want one of those around here. And then they're very worried about that Roman example and about Caesar. And so they have to invest the executive power in somebody, and they decide to do it you know, more. You know, they didn't follow the Roman model about consuls, taking turns, two of them at a time, he, he, a unitary executive. 
But they, they had the confidence to do that in part because they could see what kind of man George Washington was. And, you know, they, it was actually true that they couldn't call the Constitutional Convention. Washington almost pulled out for a curious reason. And Madison rode his horse to Mount Vernon to persuade him to come because they couldn't really have it unless he was there. And so he, he was, for them, the opposite of Caesar. And so, you know, he conquered the greatest power in the world in a long, ugly war, right? And then he left his, he resigned his appointment and went home. Yeah, our late friend, Dr. Templeton, used to say he was rectitudinous. That that's what was uh, the difference between Caesar and Washington. Caesar was not limited, but Washington was self-limiting. Do you agree with that, Dr. Calvert? I agree with that 100%. Washington had a very, very strong sense of virtue. Um, you know, he was more stoic than many of the Romans were in his sense of limiting his own personal ambitions and passions. And so Washington, uh, as we often say, you know, was, was the man for the moment. He was the indispensable man. And uh, Cato the Younger was very much um, his, his model, uh, as was Cicero. Um, he read uh, Joseph Addison's great tragedy, um, Actually, it's not very well written, but it, it has lots of great ideas in it. Uh, Cato, a tragedy all about the death of Cato the Younger, who died, uh, well, committed suicide rather than submit to Caesar and uh, Caesar's rising ambition uh, to power. And uh, Cato the Younger became a model for um, for many who were anti-Caesar uh, uh, for, for uh, not millennia, but yeah, millennia. Yeah. So, Doctor, and we come back next week. Octavius is on the uh, drawing board and the beginning of the, uh, the Caesars, both the Antonin Caesars and all the others that followed. Do you much admire him? I mean, he built an empire. You've got a minute. Do you, do you much pay attention to uh, Augustus yeah, well, Caesar? He was, the most, he was the, the strongest of them all, right? And gosh, was he clever. I mean, he just, I think if he maneuvered through, uh, you know, because the Roman hierarchy... And see, I, I, I think, the, I don't know what we know about the Roman people, but the ruling class had become very ruthless. And they made long lists of who to kill. The reason Cicero was assassinated was that he got on Mark Anthony's list and Octavius couldn't negotiate it off. And, you know, then darned if uh, Octavius didn't become a very successful military commander, which is what it took. He was a schemer. Yeah, I can't wait for next week. Dr. Ken Calvert, Dr. Larry Arn, thank you. Hillsdale Dialogues, all available at hillsdale.edu, as are many amazing online courses, including some about the ancient world and some about the framing that you ought to watch. Hillsdale.edu. I'll be back next week, America. Uh, Have a great Labor Day. We'll talk to you on Tuesday on the next live Hugh Hewitt Show.